two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, it's the wheelchair commandments. Yeah, can't tell me nothing about these wheels. Nothing. This chair. Uh-uh. Where my four wheelers at, huh? Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to Disability Rights Today. Disability Rights Today provides listeners with new insights on recent court cases that shape the Americans with Disabilities Act and impact the civil rights of people with disabilities. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the director of the Southeast ADA Center. And as a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form anytime at disabilityrightstoday.org. The United States Supreme Court began its session on Monday, October 4, 2021, and on the docket are four critical cases that could impact the disability community. Those cases are CVS versus Doe, concerning whether 504, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, and by extension, Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act provides a disparate impact uh, cause of action for plaintiffs alleging disability discrimination. Also, we have Cummings versus Premier Rehab Keller, which addresses whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the statutes that incorporate its remedies for victims of discrimination, such as the Rehabilitation Act and the Affordable Care Act, include compensation for emotional distress. The U.S. versus Vallejo Madero, and the question before the court here is whether Congress has violated the Fifth Amendment by establishing the Supplemental Security Income Program in the 50 states, the District of Columbia, the Northern Mariana Islands, but did not include Puerto Rico. And finally, Carson versus Macon, a case out of Maine that asks whether a state violates the religion clauses or equal protection clause of the U.S. Constitution by prohibiting students from participating in an otherwise generally available student aid program, from choosing to use their aid to attend schools that provide religious or sectarian instruction. With us to, to discuss these potentially significant cases, and to welcome as our distinguished guests, Arlene Mayerson, the Directing Attorney Emerita of Council of Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, or DREDF, Victoria Rodriguez-Roldan, Senior Policy Manager at AIDS United, and Claudia Center, the Legal Director at DREDF. As always, our host is Dr. Peter Blank, Chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, University Professor. Peter, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Barry. And Welcome to our listeners. We have a, a great treat today. Three extraordinary panelists who in each their own ways have shaped and are shaping the past and future of disability rights advocacy. My understanding is uh, there has not been a convening of this type in which members of the disability community get together to address the issues coming in a Supreme Court term and what a Supreme Court term this is shaping up to be. You've heard about some of the cases that we may touch upon. And of course, there are other very important and pressing cases related to abortion rights, related to gun control, 
And today, the United States Supreme Court actually heard its first oral arguments. It involved Mississippi, not an abortion rights case, actually a case involving water rights between Mississippi and Tennessee. So the term is underway. And it's a very important term to be considered from a disability perspective and more broadly from a civil rights perspective. I'd like to start with Arlene Mayerson. Uh, Arlene, as the saying goes, really needs no introduction, but it would not be fair to give her an introduction as I will for all the folks. Arlene is, is a foundational and founding member force of the disability rights movement in the United States. She's a founding member of DREDF, the Disability Rights Educational Defense Fund, and has been involved with cases from the United States Supreme Court on down, advocating for the rights of persons with disabilities. Arlene, if I may start with you, as a disability rights lawyer, you were among the first to become involved in Supreme Court cases. You were a relatively young lawyer then. You, of course, were fighting for civil rights, um, but disability rights was kind of new on the horizon, and there was really no cohort of lawyers that had argued disability movement and law rights prior. Now, I know you were involved with some of the very early, intimately involved for that matter, both as co-counsel and amici and coordinating cases, but I thought it'd be very helpful and grounding to our listeners, Arlene, to backtrack a little bit and recount a bit about the first cases you were involved with and the nature of this evolving disability civil rights bar. Arlene? As a disability rights lawyer, right after the first Section 504 case was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, Section 504 was modeled after race and gender discrimination statutes, which said that if you were a recipient of federal financial assistance, you could not discriminate on the basis of race, ethnicity, gender, and then with 504 disability. And the, the rules and regulations about 504 came after a very long, hard-fought political battle. So when the first Supreme Court decision came down, Southeastern Community College versus Davis in 1979, the court did not really understand these newfound civil rights called disability rights. And at the time I was working, as I said, for the predecessor for DREDF, which is part of the first Center for Independent Living in Berkeley, California. And all the activists and the people I worked with there were extremely upset that the court got it so wrong. And it basically involved a woman who was deaf, who wanted to be a student to become a nurse. And without going into any details, there was a lot in the decision which showed that the court still had an antiquated view of disability and basically found that she wouldn't be able to be a nurse because she couldn't hear. So there was a, a hue and cry in the movement, which, you know, I was, which was CIL was very much a part of and a founder of to like, you know, kind of blast the Supreme Court for their lack of understanding of the nature of disability and how, of course, this deaf nurse could do many things that would be extremely beneficial in the nursing field. 
And that was my first uh, foray into, you know, as a movement lawyer, which I was and continue to be, um, to explain to the community that you can't really say the Supreme Court got it all wrong and put it in its worst light, because whatever the Supreme Court said, we have to live with in our future cases. And that's a very kind of, you know, tricky balance. Anyway, so that's when I came in. So by the time the next case came up, which was Consolidated Rail versus Drone, uh, which involved a one-armed railroad engineer, I knew that is as important as it was to explain to the court how the law applied to the situation. It was very important to educate the court you know, even at that point, Marshall leaned forward during the oral argument and said, are you meaning to tell us that we want a one-armed engineer driving the train? And those kinds of things were just considered basically unheard of at the time. So Justice Marshall not only voted favorably in the Consolidated Rail Corporation involving the one-armed engineer, but he wrote a seminal dissent in the Cleburne case about how disability discrimination and race discrimination are not only very similar, but intertwined, and that there's a confluence of discrimination that goes back to, you know, at least the turn of the century. So I, that's when I realized that part of the job of our newly founded National Defense Fund would be to educate the court and to get other lawyers educated about disability rights. And one of the things that's important to know is that most of the cases that go to the Supreme Court are not being done by disability rights lawyers. It, it became very clear early on that we needed to be involved in writing the brief and writing amicus briefs and coordinating the country around what contributions they could make through the amicus process. I have to say, by the way, sometimes things don't change. Working on the uh, Achazabal v. Chevron case, uh, which involved direct threat of people with disabilities, I remember Justice Kennedy leaning forward, very different than Justice Marshall, of course, in ideology, and saying, you mean to tell me that employers have to hire suicidal employees? So it seems to be something about uh, worst case scenarios the justices think about when hiring persons with disabilities. At that point, I was basically a newbie lawyer, but the field was not organized. Um, there were probably a couple handfuls of people in the country who considered themselves disability rights lawyers. The laws were brand new. So Dredef considered it part of its fundamental defense fund role to be involved in Supreme Court cases. And the first three cases that we were involved in, the which were the second, third, and fourth case the Supreme Court ever heard on 504, were all brought up by lawyers who did not do disability rights law or even necessarily civil rights law. So it was very important to us to make sure that we were involved in both the writing of the brief and getting you know, other organizations, disability rights organizations around the country to lend a voice. And that's called an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief. That's, that's fantastic grounding for us. I wanted to turn to Victoria briefly. And Arlene, if I may, I'll come back to you. I just wanted to get our other panelists involved. 
Victoria, I think it's fair to say you are now part of a new generation of thinkers uh, about Supreme Court advocacy and the issues brought before the Supreme Court. What's your sense of, before we get into the specifics of the cases presently before the court, of the disability communities and broader civil rights communities engagement in both shaping and advocating about the types of issues that are at the United States Supreme Court. Well, and thank you for having me here. I would say then one of the things that civil rights movements need to ensure and handle when it comes to this is basically try to assess whether to what their odds of, of, of understanding. And we need to see the Supreme Court not necessarily as a partisan monolith where we can easily predict how it will go down. Uh, uh, but sometimes it just is a matter of making the right arguments for the right justice, basically. And in the process, understanding what we're up against. An example of that in the LGBTQ community is the Boston decision more recently, Vergefell uh, as marriage, where Justice Gorsuch was the one who Roe, who handed down the decision holding that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act covered uh, sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination as a form of sex discrimination. So it is a very interesting affair where we need to not necessarily discount some of the justices that are before us, just because they also hold positions that we don't like on other issues. Thank you, Victoria. And now I an opening question for Claudia, and I'm gonna come full circle back to Arlene. We're gonna talk about the present day Supreme Court cases, but Claudia, I'm not casting any aspersions about age, but if Arlene is a foundational member and uh, Victoria is a relatively new generation member, uh, you and I are kind of mid-level, mid-generation members. You've seen a lot. Um, what's your take on how we got to where we are today in terms of Supreme Court advocacy? And what can we expect going forward? Thank you, Peter. Well, I think I agree with you that I am in the generation between the, the founding leaders of the disability rights legal uh, community and the, the newer leaders. And so part of my role is to try to take the knowledge um, and foundational work that um, uh, our original leaders uh, brought to this project and to try to make sure it gets transmitted to all of the uh, lawyers who are up and coming in the work and who will be the leaders or, or are the leaders and will be the leaders going forward into the future. So I definitely try to play that role. Thank you, Claudia. Now, now let's get into a little bit more of the substance of today. And Arlene, if I may come back to you in this round robin. And again, uh, folks, feel free to jump in. I don't mean to go uh, in this unilateral fashion completely, but uh, Arlene, um, so we have these cases before the Supreme Court, CBS, for example, v. Doe, which you can tell us a little bit about. Uh, the disability community is clearly concerned about this case, but underlying this case is a very seasoned strategist and litigator how did this case get to be where it is? And what's the strategy to deal with it before this current court? 
understanding that you'll have to give us a little background about the case. Unfortunately, the disability community doesn't get to choose which cases go to the Supreme Court. Most often, it's because we won in the circuit court, you know, the three different levels, the trial court, the circuit court, and then the Supreme Court. It's that we won in the circuit court, and that's why it ends up in the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court doesn't have to take every case, they grant cert very sparingly. And so just the mere fact that you have a winning case in the Ninth Circuit, which is the CVS case, the fact that the Supreme Court granted cert already gives you butterflies in the stomach. Um, because we had a good decision in the Ninth Circuit and they not only chose to take the case, but they chose to present the issue. And you can only argue the issue that they certify is whether 504 of the Rehabilitation Act includes disparate impact claims. And without having a whole law class about this, I'd like to just say that in our tradition, to exclude people with disabilities or racial or you know, people of color or women, what they institute as policies may have that effect. And that's very, very much a part and foundational to disability rights law. So for instance, if you don't have a ramp on a building and there's only steps, do you really want to be limited to arguing that someone intentionally put the steps there in order to exclude people with disabilities? No. So it's a very key element, disparate impact. You might not have been thinking about excluding people, but you are excluding people, has always been actionable under the civil rights laws. I've been doing this for 40 years. It's also always been a key part of civil rights law that's under attack by the right and by conservatives. So that's why we are so, so nervous. Very briefly, the facts of the case are that people with AIDS who work at various places, their insurance plan has a pharmaceutical manager, CVS, which designates the AIDS drugs that they need, the HIV drugs that they need to be in a special category where you can't go to your local pharmacy and get them. You have to go either they get dropped off at a CVS near you or they come to your house. And there's a lot of problems that the people with AIDS have with this policy. And they brought the case to say, we want to be able to get our HIV drugs, the same place that we get all our other drugs, where the pharmacy can knows about the interactions between the drugs, where we have established relationships, where we can discuss, et cetera. So that case uh, was brought under ADA 504, but also really, really significantly to our community, the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act discrimination provision 1557 incorporates section 504. So it's all kind of tied up in a bundle right here because whatever the threat is to 504, it's also a threat to ACCA and it could also end up being a backdoor threat to the ADA itself. So the Ninth Circuit said, well, we understand that. We think that does make out a 504 claim because they're getting the drug, but they're getting inferior service because they don't get the consultation of a pharmacy and et cetera. We're very worried that they decided to certify one question and one question only, does 504 cover disparate impact discrimination? 
very, very concerned because the right-wing movement that has been attacking that aspect, that essential aspect of disability rights law is basically the composition of the court with our few friends as exceptions. Well, Professor Mayerson, that's an outstanding setup of the CVS case. Let me turn please to Victoria, who again is the senior policy manager of the AIDS United project. Uh, Victoria, what does this case mean to your community, the broader community, and, and how would you build on what Arlene just talked about? Yeah, it does carry the same situation, a very similar situation, uh, which is one of the problems, the whole 504 of the Rehab Act, and by extension, 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. So a big part of, this, of the situation is whether it provides a disparate impact cost of action uh, for plaintiffs that are alleging that discrimination against CBS. Uh, and one of the things to keep in mind is that if what is at stake here, basically? If it were found that 504 does not include disparate action, disparate impact, it does cause a very bad situation where it will does pretty much anything that isn't actual intentional discrimination uh, would not be covered or protected under discrimination law. Uh, the case relies a lot on the topic on the disparate impact caused by the pharmacy benefits uh, and of Caremark, but I'm not gonna go too much into that. One of the issues that happened there is what is at stake? Like that is the part that worries me a lot because so much of the disparate impact of, of disability discrimination theory relies on disparate impact. Are you excluding so much disability discrimination is, oh, you didn't make the space successful if you had the best intention on earth. And while it can be hard to prove in disability, disability is probably the most common form of disability discrimination out there, which is basically, it's not, haha, we are deliberately excluding people with disabilities or disabled. It's, we honestly did not realize that this harms people with disabilities, that this excludes them in some distortion way. And when we take that protection out from under the uh, feed of 504, that creates an enormous amount of harm to the ability of litigators to protect people. Thank you, Victoria. Now, Claudia, among other things, you are the premier strategist, litigation and otherwise that I know about disability issues. You always hear uh, the Supreme Court's gonna take something and then they, you know, because they want to overturn it or at least narrow it. So kind of a catch-22 here. You get a great victory or a win at the Ninth Circuit, and now you have a terrific strategy question at the United States Supreme Court. Um, is this addressable at all? What are we in kind of a box here as a disability community? What can happen? So I think we are in a bit of a box because the Supreme Court has granted cert on this very risky question. 
about whether Section 504 includes disparate impact claims. And when the Supreme Court has already granted cert, really the only thing you can do is try to talk to the parties, the defendant, the plaintiffs, to see if there's any way to you know, resolve the case or to um, come the case is not decided by the Supreme Court. And, and that has happened in a number of um, civil rights cases over the decades and a number of disability rights cases over the decades where our community meets with different stakeholders and tries to figure out if there's anything that can be done. I wanted to add one point about disparate impact and disparate treatment. I think that uh, the conservatives tend to be more comfortable with disparate treatment claims, and they tend to be uh, very suspicious and hostile to disparate impact claims. One of the challenges with disability discrimination is that it's often almost like a hybrid between disability, I mean, between disparate treatment and disparate impact. The same evidence can show disparate treatment or disparate impact. And so it's concerning to us that they've taken this question when they don't really understand how disability discrimination happens. And they could say things about disparate impact that could go far beyond what we would think of as as disparate impact. Emotional distress, something I have studied and obviously experienced in my family and seen a lot because I do a lot of work on mental health issues, mental illness. Uh, This case is about basically whether or not emotional distress can be part of a compensation remedy. Cummings v. Premier Rehab Keller, what's the importance of this case and what's going to happen in your crystal ball? Sure. So in this case, uh, Jane Cummings is a deaf woman who lives in Texas. She needed uh, physical therapy for her chronic back pain. Um, She called and tried to make an appointment with the place that was recommended to her. She tried three different times, explained that she needed um, sign language interpreting for the treatment. And they uh, repeatedly said, no, um, go somewhere else. We don't provide sign language interpreting. So she eventually sued under um, Title III of the ADA, under Section 504, and under uh, 1557, the provision that we were just talking about of the Affordable Care Act. And um, as is often the case in in these uh, situations, the court found that she did not have standing under Title III of the ADA, because that law only provides for injunctive relief. It does not provide for damages. And so because she could not show um, that she was gonna go back to that physical therapy um, clinic or that she had a plan to do that, she could not show standing for injunctive relief. Um, So she had to go for damages, um, and the damage remedy is available under Section 504 and uh, 1557, which incorporates 504 by reference. And so um, she was seeking basically emotional distress damages, you know, damages for being treated so um, poorly, treated with disrespect, 
shunted aside, being told we're not going to provide sign language interpreting for, for you, even though we're covered by all the regulations that say that we have to provide sign language interpreting. Um, no um, remedy for emotional distress damages under Section 504 or under 1557. They said that um, because those laws are um, adopted, enacted by Congress under something called spending clause authority, that um, they're akin to a contract. The entities receive federal funding and in exchange for that funding, they agree to comply with laws such as sex, section 504 or 1557. And the Fifth Circuit said, well, that contract analogy, um, if you look at contracts, you don't usually get emotional distress damages under contracts. And so for that reason, we do not think that these entities were on notice that they might be liable damages when they accepted federal financial assistance. So, um, you know, the disability community did a brief in the Fifth Circuit and they did a brief in the Supreme Court and the briefs, uh, you know, detailed all of the notice that the recipients of federal financial assistance have received over the decades, notice from Congress, from agencies, from appellate courts, from trial courts, and have also um, underscored how important these remedies are. And they are often the only remedy that is available to a person, such as in the case of Jane Cummings. Now, let me follow up, Claudia. Victoria and Arlene, feel free to jump in. So here you have a negative Fifth Circuit ruling from the perspective of the disability community. And in the Ninth Circuit, you had a positive one. Why is the court taking these cases? Is there a split among the circuits or is this a particular area they're interested in? How do we get to this point? Sure. Um, so actually, uh, the uh, Fifth Circuit in Cummings made very clear that it was considering an 11th Circuit case called Sheely, which was very, very similar. Um, in that case, it was a blind woman who wanted to access a medical facility with her service dog. Um, but the Sheely case said, no, the funding recipient is on notice of the possibility of emotional distress damages. In fact, it, it should have been foreseeable to the medical facility that what they did to this plaintiff, excluding them on the basis of their disability and their need for a service animal, that it should have been foreseeable that that would cause emotional distress damages. And so the Fifth Circuit cited to um, that Sheely case and said explicitly, we understand this case exists and we reject it. We think the proper analogy is contract and um, you know, the funding recipients not on notice. So there was really a clear um, split in the authority that the Fifth Circuit acknowledged explicitly and in that um, situation, uh, the Supreme Court will often uh, grant review. Oh, got it. That's very helpful. Now, Victoria, was there such a split in the um, CVS case? How did that get to, to the Supreme Court? Well, that is an excellent question because in the case, of what happened in the case of the CVS case, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm not the litigator in the room, 
is that we have a very good decision from the Ninth Circuit. The question is, why is the Supreme Court taking it? Usually when there's a circuit split, it's pretty easy to get it. And even then the Supreme Court doesn't like taking cases that much. Arlene, it was just because it was the Ninth Circuit that the Supreme Court stuck its nose out? I think that, as I said, the issue of disparate impact, it, this is why I, I particularly fear this court, this case being before the Supreme Court, that issue has been on the target on the bullseye for conservative jurists for ever since the 60s. And, but and tell, so, tell, tell us in plain language, why? Why is this such a uh, politicized issue? Well, it all starts with race discrimination because, you know, it's one thing to have what they, the Supreme Court has decided that you know, in order to have a constitutional claim for race discrimination, you have to show animus. And the race discrimination is with, you know, obviously a history of extreme animus. Um, and that's what they're comfortable with. They're comfortable like if you had animus and you excluded someone for that reason, okay, we can get that that's called civil rights. The classic disparate impact case from the 70s is, but what about if a high school diploma is required for a job and particular people of color are less likely to have that high school diploma. And therefore that's a discrimination claim. They don't like that. They call that social engineering. They don't want it to go that far. And so that's already, you know, they've already been pretty successful in the area of race discrimination as far as the title six, which is 504 was based on. Um, but they don't like the idea, the idea that something that has the effect, which wasn't based on an intention, would be recognizable. And there's a big move in all the civil rights bar to recognize the fact, and particularly in the context of race and ethnicity, of implicit bias, which is, you know, all the employers know better now, or all the various entities know better now than to say, we don't want you because you're black. So there's all these veiled policies that kind of get to the same result. And that's why the civil rights bar is so determined to keep that. And remi remind us, just building on that point, why disability is different than race in this regard. So uh, while there, there has been a horrible history of animus and terrible treatment of people with disabilities, there's also this gloss of good intentions, which has also resulted in the same exclusion, the same segregation of people with disabilities. So for instance, um, they, like an example I always use is that there's studies that find that the, the inclination to pity someone who's blind corresponds with the inclination to advocate for segregation. So it's a tricky area because paternalism, it's similar in gender also. It's, oh, we're gonna not let you have this job because it's not good for your fair sex. And, oh, we're not, we, we don't think you're, you know, you can handle this job because of your disability. So it's, a, you know, it has come up in a different context. I mean, there is also a lot of animus, don't get me wrong, but a lot, most of the cases involve false stereotypes, 
low expectations that are not based on any facts or just prejudice, but not prejudice with animus, prejudice about what someone can do. And so that, that would include basically thoughtlessness, like thoughtlessness. Yeah. Very interesting. So Victoria, obviously that manifests itself in the, in the uh, HIV community, the AIDS community. How do you, what's your take on what Arlene was just saying? One thing to keep in mind in the HIV world and the rest of the disability world kind of live in separate planets to an extent, aren't really aware that they're part of one, that they're part of each other. And then the process, like we can go back all the way to the 1990s and the inclusion by the Supreme Court uh, of HIV under the protections of the ADA. So Part of the reason why this is so important is precisely how it impacts, for example, with chronic illnesses, immunocompromisation illnesses, and so on. Because, for example, in the case of the MCBS case, one, if I remember correctly, the plaintiffs, part of the issue was the spared impact towards people living with HIV, for example. That is one effect, and a significant amount of disparate impact cases harmed the most precisely with chronic invisible illnesses, basically, where, for example, let's say a requirement that you cannot take X amount of breaks at a a workplace or stand in an accommodation, that is a form of disparate impact when it starts harming the person with uh, a disability. And of course, in the employment context, we go through a reasonable accommodation process. But that is still a rule, like that, in a process. But that is still a rule that imposes a disparate burden to one extent on people with a disability that cannot do that thing. So that's the problem. So much of disability discrimination is precisely the unintentional type, the well-intended. And I like to joke that a significant amount of all the worst initiatives in disability are made with the best of intentions because they're made by the let's help these poor people with disabilities um, intention. And when we go into that, we we create further and further disparate impacts that disproportionately harm people with disabilities. Not a closing argument, Claudia, but um, your thoughts? Have we, have we omitted any important points? Are there other cases that, uh, that you think should be on our radar screen? And um, what do you foreshadow? You can take any or all of those points in your closing remarks. This is Claudia. I think the most important case for uh, the disability community, uh, the most risky case is the CVS versus Doe case because it really threatens the ability of uh, people with disabilities to bring complaints under Section 1557 to access um, critical health benefits. Um, And many of those claims are put under the label of disparate impact. Um, I'm also keeping an eye out on the um, Supreme Court's review of United States versus Vallejo Madero, which is about whether the exclusion of Puerto Rican residents from the 
um, supplemental security income program, the SSI program, is a violation of equal protection because there's no rational basis for excluding residents of Puerto Rico. Um, I think that um, the disability community has an interest in um, equal protection. Um, with the LGBT cases of the past 10 years, we've seen a um, sort of renaissance of rational basis actually having some, um, some force to it, um, a renaissance of a case um, called Cleburne that is from the late 80s that's a disability constitutional law case. And so I'm interested in and residents of Puerto Rico. Um, if there are adverse decisions in CVS, for example, would there be remedies in state law or other avenues that people could pursue such claims? Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, whatever happens, we will do what we can to advocate for our communities. We will make claims that are permitted under federal law in federal court, and we will make claims in state court um, under state law. Some uh, states have very good state courts and state laws, and some states do not. So as with issues with voting and abortion, it's, it's really hard to let go of um, federal law because we want everyone to have the same rights. Well said, Victoria. I know you wanted to pick up on that and, and perhaps discuss state law issues. Well, yeah, I'm just going to say it is very important also that we do not neglect what are our state uh, legal protections. Obviously, we want, as Claudia said, protections for everyone, and it's really hard to let go of the federal protections. But basically, many attorneys, uh, many civil rights attorneys often have a bit of lack of imagination when it comes to making uh, to engaging in litigation and focus solely on federal uh, arguments and shouldn't be afraid of exploiting state law whenever it's available as a way of preserving the claim if there's an identical statute or if the law is even better than the federal law. Um, one thing I would say as a closing is that I am very much interested in the Puerto Rico case around SSI. I feel very strongly that how it goes will tell us a lot of the future of the disability rights movement of the next several decades, to be very honest. Thank you, Victoria. Uh, as appropriate, Arlene, you're going to have the last word, but I'm thinking uh, maybe as some of our listeners are, if there's an adverse ruling in CBS, why doesn't Congress change the law? I did just want to point out that every case we've decided, we've talked about that Claudia talked about the blind woman, the deaf woman, the, the people with AIDS and CVS, all of those cases involve accommodations that the individual needed and wanted. And the danger of the CVS case is that it could say, well, we didn't exclude her because she was deaf. We exclude her because she wanted an interpreter. We didn't exclude her because she was blind. We exclude her because we don't like dogs. I mean, it, it can get very, very scary. The ramifications that we fear have a lot to do with the political agenda of many of the justices in the Supreme Court. And so even if, let's say, we fixed 
1557 and say, well, it's not based on 504. It's based on the ADA. The pronouncements being broad is what we feel. So courts' decisions have such a tremendous direct impact on people with disabilities that the disability community has also worked very hard to try to get the Supreme Court not to hear certain cases. And in California, there was a case where the medical board decided to not allow someone to be a doctor because of their mental illness. The community lobbied, demonstrated, did so much that the state of California withdrew its cert petition to the Supreme Court and actually said, we were withdrawing this because we don't want to do harm to the ADA. And so it was just a tremendous victory of the community. And then in another case that was before the Supreme Court, the disability community met with them. And sure enough, they, they, they changed their position actually standing in front of the Supreme Court. So I want to say that in general, one thing that I just love about disability rights law is that the disability rights community and disability rights law are intertwined, that it's owned by the community. What I take away from this, not, not just substantively, is I've had the chance and our listeners have had the chance to listen to three brilliant legal minds who are at the forefront of cutting edge legal advocacy, disability advocacy, who are from essentially three generations of leaders in this area. And it, it leaves me optimistic in light of the challenges ahead, not minimizing those, that people like yourself will continue to make an important difference in the civil rights lives of us all. And for that, I thank you three. Listeners, our guests on this episode of Ability Rights Today, I've been Arlene Mayerson, Directing Attorney Emerita and of Council Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, DREDF, Victoria Rodriguez Roldan, Senior Policy Manager of AIDS United, and Claudia Center, Legal Director for DREDF. To access Disability Rights Today episodes, visit our website at disabilityrightstoday.org. All episodes are archived with streamed audio accessible transcripts, and resources. You can listen to Disability Rights Today on SoundCloud, and you can download Disability Rights Today to your mobile device podcast app by searching for Disability Rights Today. If you have questions about the ADA, you can submit them anytime at disabilityrightstoday.org or contact your regional ADA center. That number is 1-800-949-CONFIDENTIAL. Disability Rights Today is a program of the Southeast ADA Center and the Burton Blatt Institute. Thanks for listening today. Visit Disability Rights Today for more information. And as our discussion today uh, emphasizes, your rights matter. Oh, just
Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, or DREDF, is based in Berkeley, California at the Ed Roberts campus, which is a, an accessible community center uh, focused on supporting people with disabilities. DREDF was founded in 1979 by people with disabilities and by parents of children with disabilities. Um, DREDF is board and staff led by people with disabilities and works to advance and protect the civil and human rights of disabled people through education, advocacy, and law reform. Comments.